The following message is from Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org. I started off a couple weeks ago in this series asking you to think about meetings that you both um, really look forward to and then meetings and gatherings that you really dread. And I asked you to try to figure out why is it that some meetings are so enjoyable and others are just so hard to get through. And I pointed out in that message that I think a lot of it has to do with the heart with which we engage in these meetings. I think there's no real magic in a meeting in of itself. And so um, just because you have the meeting doesn't mean anything great is going to happen to it. It's just showing up doesn't make for a good meeting. You have to enter into that meeting with some intentionality, with some heart of what you want to get out of it. And if every participant in the meeting does that, then that meeting can be meaningful. Um, and one of the big purposes we talked about in uh, starting our life groups is this idea of connecting with each other, that I don't just show up because this is what I signed up for, but when I come to that life group gathering, I'm coming with this genuine expectation of having some meaningful connection with others. Uh, but I also shared in that message that it's not just for us to be there for one another. The purpose that is laid out in Scripture is beyond just each of us meeting our mutual lonelinesses and, and being there for each other. It's also about how we bring each other to connect with God. And it was beautifully illustrated in the story of that paralytic who by himself had no access to Jesus, but through these amazing friends that he had who brought him to the roof of the house where Jesus was teaching and then actually burrowed a hole into that roof, they led him to Jesus so that he could be healed. And that symbolically is one of the things that friendship in Christ is all about too, how we help each other to press on in this Christian journey and to keep contending and fighting for the faith. Um, I want to move on and talk in this theme of transforming love then as we continue reflecting on what community really looks like. And I, I understand this, not everyone in our church has signed up for a life group. And although a lot of what I want to apply is directly related to life group, I think this can really, the principles I want to lay out are definitely applicable to just general Christian community uh, as well, okay? Um, the opening chapters of Genesis are so important because what they do is they lay a foundation for us of understanding the world as God intended it. And then it also helps us understand what happened when sin entered our world and affected God's plan for us. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, it says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And this theme of nakedness is going to be developed in the next chapter in the coming chapters, and really the rest of the Bible. And so it's clear when you look at this theme of nakedness developed in the Bible that the state of what is called naked and unashamed is something that's referring much more than just the physical condition of these two, two people. Um, what it's really saying is that before sin entered the world, Adam and Eve were in a state where there was really nothing to hide. Um, and when you have nothing to hide, there's a really uh, a powerful truth that being fully known in that condition is actually a joyful experience, isn't it? If you've got nothing to hide, then what you long for is to be fully known by others. 
And that's what Adam and Eve, the Bible tells us, experienced in the garden before sin. I would also argue that to be fully known and fully accepted is one of the deepest longings of the human heart. But when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, it changed everything. In Genesis 3, verse 7 to 10, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for them. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked, so I hid. Adam hears God approaching in the garden. And you could sort of imagine that on any other given day, this would have been a cause for celebration. And you can almost picture with joy in his heart, Adam and Eve both seeking God out and saying, he's here. And jumping at the chance to, to have fellowship with him. Now that they had eaten the forbidden fruit, everything is different. And now their instinct is to hide among the trees. What's interesting is that Adam and Eve had already covered their nakedness with fig leaves. So that's why I'm saying it's clear that it's not just physical nakedness that is making them uncomfortable. That problem had already been dealt with, with this clothing that they made for themselves. I think it's a relational nakedness, a relational shame that Adam and Eve are experiencing because they know that they have gone against God's commands. And so even though they are no longer physically naked, there is a deeper spiritual nakedness that causes them to hide from God among the trees. What is so sad about this story is that being known was one of the greatest joys that we were created for. But with the entrance of sin, it has now become one of our greatest fears. And so they hid from God. And I would say every generation after Adam and Eve has lived in the state of fear, hiding and trying to cover up the parts of ourselves that are embarrassing, shameful, that we don't want others to see. I think one of the endearing things about little children is that they're so bad at hiding their emotions. Whether they are angry or sad or full of joy or surprised, um, their faces always reveal what's sort of going on in their hearts, don't, don't they? It's at least when they're very young. That's why they're horrible at poker, you know? It's because they don't know how to bluff, you know? I, I remember actually we were on a family vacation when our kids were younger. And I, I don't know why I did this because I'm a pastor, but I try to teach them poker, you know? And I try to teach them how to play poker. And it was no fun because <laughs> you could see when they have a good hand. And they're like, oh, okay, I fold. And you just get out of that hand. And that's just how kids are. But sadly, the older we get, the more we learn to disguise what's really going on inside of us, don't we? We learn how to look happy when we're actually sad, how to look confident when we're insecure, how to appear calm when we're actually very anxious inside. And what's strange is this. Um, we feel we need to do this in order to be accepted by others. We, we think we need to do this for the sake of community. But the sad truth is that the more we put on our masks, the more we actually end up pushing people away and rejecting authentic community in our lives. 
I think the truth is there's a part inside all of us that wishes that we could be more childlike, more honest and transparent with what's going on inside of us. But there is this tug of war all the time, isn't there, between this idea of being known and being accepted. And the bargain is this, you can't have both. You can't have both. If I am known, I will be rejected. And so the only way to find acceptance with others is to hide the parts of me that others cannot accept. And so in that actual moment when we could be more open and emotionally vulnerable, the truth is most of us chicken out and we put our masks back on. I think we all know these rare adults who actually uh, have fewer filters than everyone else, right? And they tend to expose their emotions in an almost childlike way. Um, they're very honest and they're very forthright and they tend to let down their guard more easily and they tend to blurt out what everyone is thinking but no one is courageous enough to say out loud. They're actually the people that say it out loud. And here's the thing that I think also we would acknowledge is we're drawn to people like that, aren't we? We, we want friends like that because friends like that actually feel safe in some ways, right? Because what you see is what you get. There's nothing really hidden with them. You know exactly where you stand with them. There's something about personalities like that that we're actually drawn to. What's, our other, what's our, another interesting phenomenon is the studies have shown that when somebody we deeply admire does something stupid or clumsy, we actually end up liking them more. <laughs> and it's funny that it works that way, isn't it? But it's weird, right? We, we actually wish that the people that we look up to and respect would reveal more of their flaws, don't we? Because it reveals their humanity and it helps us to, it builds a bridge with us because the truth is they feel so far from us. They feel so unlike us, but when they make a mistake publicly, it actually warms, their, our hearts are warmed toward them because we say, oh, you know, they're like me. They're imperfect, just like me. And we know that looking upstream at our leaders and the people we respect, but here's again the ironic thing is when we look downstream at the people that we are over, we never want to make those mistakes. We always want to come across as polished and perfect. We're not willing to be vulnerable for that sake of connection when it's at our expense. John Orberg writes, the more skillful we are at impression management, the more we are trapped in our true aloneness. But we are not made to live this way. Imagine what your life would be like if all pretense were to vanish from it. Imagine the freedom and relief of not trying to convince anyone you are smarter or better than you are. This really is God's plan for human life. There is nothing more winsome or attractive than a person who is secure enough in being loved by God that he or she lives with a spirit of openness and transparency and without guile. There's something so attractive about a person like that and yet the paradox is we don't ever want to be that person. It just feels too risky to lay it all out on the line like that. Applying it to our life groups this year, this is my hope that some of you this year will take some risks, specifically to express your honest thoughts and feelings without always being so worried that others may disagree or even disapprove of what you have to say. 
Secondly, to acknowledge when you don't know something or may have even gotten something wrong rather than always trying to manage a positive image in the eyes of others. This is two commitments I'm asking all of us to make as we engage in life groups this year in order to build authentic community in our gatherings. Now, I, I need to say something because in inviting you to this, idea of speaking more honestly about your thoughts and feelings, it is not an invitation for gossiping or cutting down other people or the church, okay? I, I don't think we need any more encouragement to do that, all right? I, I am saying it's about more, being more reflective and open about your own personal struggles in the presence of others. Because one of the most destructive aspects of sin is the way that it blinds us to our own faults, causing us to focus on the weaknesses and failures of others while we're utterly clueless to our own failings. We see that right in the Genesis story in verses 11 to 13 of Genesis 3. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The blame is just kicked down the street, isn't it? Rather than owning up to his sin, Adam blames Eve, and more subtly, he even blames God, because it's the woman you gave me, right? You could have made anyone, but this is the one you gave me, and there you go, God. There's the, the start of our problems, isn't it, right? When I was here by myself, we were all okay. And, and the woman doesn't take the blame, right? She says, the serpent made me do it. No one is willing to look inwardly and take ownership of what they have done. Matthew 7, verse 3 to 4, Jesus puts it very eloquently. What do you, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? That's the human condition, isn't it? None of us see this huge log jutting from our eye. But, oh, we are so good at seeing that little particle in somebody else's eye. I recently referenced the story of John's gospel. In John's gospel, about this woman who was dragged out of her home, caught in the act of adultery. And it too highlights this tendency of ours of judging others far more harshly than we judge ourselves. In John chapter 8, verse 2 to 6, it says, At dawn he appeared again in the temple court, speaking of Jesus, where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. In this utter act of inhumanity, they dragged this woman out into the public square to be used as nothing more than an object lesson to trap Jesus. And then they even pick up stones and they get ready to stone her if Jesus would only say the word. Again, John Ortberg writes, I have been in the church my whole life. I love the church. But I wonder sometimes, why do churches 
produce so many stone throwers. I think of a church, I think of a church I was a part of many years ago where many people, not all but too many, were just cold. They didn't dance. They didn't laugh. They had little capacity for joy. But there was one thing they enjoyed, passing judgment on the spiritual inferiority of others. Somebody's kids were a little wild. People would pick up stones. Somebody's marriage wasn't working. Another stone. Somebody's crossed a line, violated a code, had a problem. Word spread. People picked up stones. The truth is, though they would never admit this, it energized them, gathering stones. They looked forward to it. Condemnation and judgment have become so deeply rooted in the human spirit that most of us can't imagine having to function without them. We must let people know how much we disapprove of them, particularly those we don't like. And of course, we are richly rewarded by the sense of superiority such condemnation breeds in us. Have you ever held a stone in your hand? This is the sad state that we're in is none of us wants to disclose what's really inside us because we're so worried about the hostile environment that that would be met by when we express vulnerability. But the truth is, each one of us are victims as well as victimizers. We are part of the culture that has created that judgmental spirit so that when somebody actually exposes a weakness, rather than accepting them, we crucify them. We judge them. We stone them. And so this is the soup we are swimming in and living in, is that none of us will expose what's going on. Because then the knives come out. And the truth is all of us have a knife in our hand, ready to dig into the person who dares to share where their weakness lies. And the gospel needs to change all of that. And the gospel can change all of that. I know some of you are familiar with what's known as the Johari window. Um, I used to think it's such an exotic name, Johari, and but it's just the guy's names are Joe and Harry kind of. And so it's a combination of their two names, uh, Joseph and Harrington, actually. Um, and so they created this graphic way of trying to understand what we're after here. Um, and it tells us about what it means to try to seek self-understanding in the context of community and how we can actually discover and grow and change together as a body of Christ. And so it bakes it up into these four quadrants based on our knowledge of ourselves and others' knowledge of us. If you look at that upper left quadrant, it's known as the open quadrant. These are the things that are known to both you and others. And they're the simple things like you love football and basketball, you're an amazing musician. You're an awesome cook. This is something you know about yourself and what others have experienced of you. But then in the upper right is what's the blind quadrant. These are the things that we don't see in ourselves, but others know about us. It's kind of the scary areas, right? He's not very good at following through with the things he says he's going to do. Yeah, She's always consumed about what others think of her. And if you were told that this is what people are saying about you, 
it's very likely that your response will be, wait, what? No. I'm not like that. <laughs> That's not me. That's unfair. The bottom left is the hidden quadrant. These are the things unknown by others and known only by you. These are, in other words, the secret things that only you know, which you have not yet revealed to anybody else. Like, I have a major lust problem, and it's getting out of control. I don't know if I can last any longer in this marriage. And then the most mysterious of all quadrants is this unknown quadrant, the bottom right. These are the things that neither you know nor others know about you. They are discoveries that are yet to happen about who you are as a person. And if you go to the next slide, the goal here is to expand the open quadrant and make the other quadrants all smaller. That's the goal of the Johari window, okay? It is, in other words, to know more about yourself and let others know more about you through community. And how does that happen? Well, we could break it down as to how it happens. First, there's the process of self-discovery, self-discovery. You come to understand things about yourself that you pre previously didn't know. Now, here's the thing is, after that self-discovery, there's another step as to whether you will choose to reveal what you discover about yourself with anyone else. Then there's also the process of feedback. This is what feels very risky here. But it is the courage to speak about what you know about someone that they actually don't know about themselves. And this is incredibly risky, is it? It's what I think Paul is saying in Ephesians 1 as well, of speaking the truth in love. And you don't know how it's going to go. You don't know how they're going to receive it. It could go good, but it could go really badly too, right? And then there's also shared discovery. Uh, or Sorry, uh, uh, actually self-disclosure as well. Self-disclosure is where we have the courage to share the secret things that we've kept hidden in our lives from others. It's what the Bible would call confession. Confession. Nobody knew this about me. But I want to share it voluntarily because I want you in my inner circle to know what I'm going through and what's going on in my heart. And then the last one is shared discovery. It's just this idea that we don't know some things about you and you don't know some things about you. But in doing community and doing life together, let this be a joyful discovery about each other that we will discover the more we come to know each other. Okay? What this is saying is, bottom line is, on our own, we are too limited to really grow as a disciple of Christ. In all of these areas of knowledge of ourselves that we need, we need one another. We need community. We need that interactive process as we speak truth and love to one another to really begin to understand the work that God wants to do in our life. It is a community effort to see and address all the things that we cannot see in ourselves. Marjorie Thompson writes in her book, Forgiveness, if we cannot see how our minds and hearts actually operate and see, see how they, and, and how they resist the things that make for health and peace, we will not be able to admit what alienates us from God, others, or ourselves. What we cannot acknowledge, we cannot confess. 
And what we cannot confess, we cannot present for forgiveness and healing. If I can admit that my heart fights to keep certain people outside the boundaries of my love, I can at least begin asking God to help me stretch those boundaries. When we release pain and anger to God over people who seem impossible to embrace with love, the Spirit begins a mysterious process in our hearts. God reveals to us the enemy within our own divided self, the wounded, scary aspects of ourselves we have tried so hard to ignore, the sides of us that are humiliating to admit. Each of us secretly harbors despised parts of our own personality, impulses, and reactions we are ashamed of, jealousy, greed, rage, self-pity, and the need to be right, the desire to win, the exhilaration of feeling superior. Such hard words from such a grandmotherly-looking woman. <laughs> That's what I thought when I actually Googled her image to put on the slide. It, was, it looks like a grandmother. She says such tough words, but such true words, isn't it? How can we confess what we can't even acknowledge is there in our heart. So we need one another in a very loving way to be able to speak truth into our lives. I want to say this. This quest for honesty and authenticity in our community is more than just, it's more than just living an emotionally healthy life or discovering, quote, the best you, Okay. It's ultimately about living in the reality of God's mercy and forgiveness toward us. It's about believing the gospel. It's about believing when the Bible says, therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because in our flawed logic, we think that in order to help someone to change, we need to constantly confront them and point out what they're doing wrong. But the truth is that approach often results in the exact opposite reaction from people. They tend to go into hiding. They tend to be more defensive and resistant around us. Anyone who is married or has children understands this. How well has that approach worked in your marriage or in your parenting? Not very good, does it, right? Doesn't your spouse love it when it's time for them to hear all their flaws <laughs> told by you, narrated by you? Um, it's love and grace, not condemnation, that gives us courage to face our deepest fears and opens us up to true change. It seems paradoxical, but people won't listen to what you have to say about them and how they need to change until they actually believe you love and accept them just as they are. It's strange that it works that way because we think in our logic we have to withhold that acceptance, withhold that love. It's like the carrot and the stick, right? If you behave, you get the carrot. But if you don't, then the stick is always right there tapping and saying, you better do better. You, you can do better. And that's how our logic works. But the logic of the gospel is this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And loved us. God made the first move with love toward us in his love for us. That's what we see in the story of this adulterous woman. In John chapter 8, verses 7 to 11. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. 
Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the women still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, Go now and leave your life of sin. I think this idea of acceptance makes us very uncomfortable because we misunderstand it. Acceptance doesn't mean that you are approving their behavior. It's clear that Jesus does not approve of this woman's adulterous affair. In fact, he calls her to leave her life of sin. But it is his mercy and his love that he showed to her that day that enabled her to take the first steps to the transformed life of turning away from her sin. That's the truth of the gospel. Accepting someone doesn't mean that you approve of what they are doing. But it says, it makes a declaration to them, I am for you, not against you. It matters to me. I care about you. I love you, even with your flaws and failures. You don't have to earn this from me. It is freely given. Listen, accepting someone is not about approving their behavior, but it also isn't simply about tolerating them, putting up with them with all of their flaws and weaknesses either. That is not what acceptance is either. I shared about this in our uh, last uh, Christmas series we did on gentle and lowly, um, looking at the heart of God toward us, but uh, it's interesting that what scandalized the religious leaders so much about Jesus is not just that he ministered to these lowlifes in society, but that he actually liked them and befriended them. In Luke chapter 15, verse 2, he says, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. That's what got to them. It's one thing to stand from a position of superiority as a religious leader and deign to minister to someone. But Jesus actually liked them. <laughs> he liked hanging out with them. He liked going to their parties. He liked breaking bread with them. And that is what offended them, that you have crossed the line here. But I think this is what Jesus meant when he says that he accepts sinners. Is he doesn't hold them at arm's length and say, get your act together and clean up, and then we can be in fellowship. But even in their state, there was something about the heart of God that went out to them and loved them and embraced them. I think that's why the crowds gathered around Jesus because they saw something in them, in him, that they didn't see in their other religious leaders that were so judgmental and self-righteous. Close with this. Final word from Ortberg, he says, someone may tolerate me, may put up with my existence and even my faults, but there's no healing in that. People need more than toleration. Bertrand Russell wrote, a sense of duty is useless, useful in work, but offensive in personal relationships. People wish to be liked, not to be endured with patient, patient resignation. 
This is part of the reason Jesus was such a magnet for people. As a general rule, when we come to those superior to us in some respect, to be endured with patient resignation is about the best we can hope for. The wise do not suffer fools gladly. All stars don't usually ride the bus with third stringers. But when messed up sinners came to the only sinless person who ever lived, he did not merely endure them with patient resignation. He genuinely liked them. Acceptance is an act of the heart. It is a remarkable action, difficult to define, yet unmistakable when we experience it. To accept people is to be for them. It is to recognize that it is a very good thing that these people are alive and to long for the best for them. And that's the spirit with which I am inviting you, and not just inviting you, but urging you to enter into community in this season of our church. To put away the judgments of others. To not only not judge them, but to get over this attitude of superiority within which you just tolerate them with a sense that you just wish they could get their act together and be more like you. What I'm really asking is to drop that stone in your hand and to embrace the truth of the gospel that because God loved and accepted me, this is the same love and acceptance I must offer to my brother and sister. Let's pray.